Hello, it's Julie Bindle, and today I'm speaking with Sal Grover. Sal is an Australian businesswoman who is the co-founder of the female-only networking app, Giggle. Women-only spaces online, we have to actually implement really serious ways to keep them that way because men are not going to just let them pass. I can tell that you are already guessing where this story is going if you don't already know it, because... Roxanne Tickle, who is a man who identifies not just as a trans woman, but as female, is taking Sal to court and saying that his gender identity is protected under the Sex Discrimination Act because, unfortunately, Australia passed this bonkers law a few years ago. Julia Gillard, what a disappointment she turned out to be, the woman who did the big misogyny speech in Parliament we all thought was a feminist, and then sold women's sex-based rights down the river. Anyway, so gender identity then trumped sex, and sex was knocked out of the park, and these men can now challenge female-only spaces, businesses, laws, you name it. Well, Sal's not having it, as you will hear. She is going to challenge Roxanne Tickle all the way through the courts. Because Sal is arguing that the Sex Discrimination Act, as it currently is, with its gender woo-woo, is invalid, is illegal, doesn't work, and actually has rendered women's rights completely and utterly invalid and useless. So, let's see how it goes. She needs our support, of course, and... This man, this Roxanne character, who's been trying to gain access to Giggle since early 2021, uh, when he managed to get through its automatic gender recognition technology, is, I think, it's me saying this, not Sal, a real creepy dude. And do you know what, Roxanne? You come for me too, and I'll see you in court. Have a listen. There were three women on Twitter that stood out to me, and I'd never ventured into this world of Twitter before. And it was you, Helen Joyce, and Jane Claire Jones. And you were the one woman, and I emailed you all, and you wrote back to me. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, I don't even want to look back to what I said because naive, whatever me, whatever I said at that point of not knowing what the issues were, but you did write back, and I. Well, I had absolutely no idea what I was walking into. None of us did. No. But in 2020, I had no idea. And so that's why I'm very empathetic to people who walk into this blindly now and they're just, and so instantly, what the hell? And I, I go, don't give them shit for not knowing what's going on yet because we've all had this moment and it it can take years to fully peak because when I think back to it, even for about the first 18 months from 2020 to gosh, mid sometime through 2021, I was still like, Oh, I'll say trans woman and blah, blah, blah. And now I'm just men. I, there is no ground I give. I'm, I am, I am a prisoner of what I know at this point. I'd love to talk to you a little bit further about that and about whether or not we At this stage in 2023, with all the legal cases and all the horror stories, whether we do actually still treat those that say they don't know what it's about with sympathy and give them 
the benefit of the doubt. But first of all, before that, I want to hear about you. I want to know who you are and a little bit about your life story building up to why we're talking today. If I would start at anything, I would say that I was raised by two really awesome parents, a very, at the time, non-feminist mother, who now is, <laughs> but that's from my influence, a, a father who very much believed in free thinking and questioning everything. And so my whole childhood, it was just always question everything. And I was always, one of the things I was always bothered by during my childhood was that my dad, I felt my dad was harder on me than he was on my brother. And I'm seven years older than my brother. And it's just the two of us. And he was, and my mom says it as well. He was harder on me. And I was when I had to question everything, blah, blah, blah. And it was a little bit of like older child, younger child. And then there was also the girl and boy thing. And dad definitely had that. But how dad explains it is what he saw in me was that I was inquisitive and that there was this sort of strength and he wanted to just push it. He always saw that he just had to keep pushing what was there to bring it out. And I was like, so I just instinctively never wanted to be in a career that dictated my freedom of thought in any way. And so when I was late teens, choosing what I wanted to do, it was, I was like, I'm going to go and be a writer. And so I, I studied film and television, partly because that was the closest writing degree kind of thing that I could do close to home. And I Where just- Where was home? Where was home? Home is on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. And I just actually, my parents had sent me, when I finished school, I did actually do a gap year. And my parents sent me to London to live. I was supposed to be there for a year. I lasted a few months. I was so homesick. I came home because I was only 17. And so then I just worked reception for my dad at, he had a real estate office. And in that time, I remember thinking, one, I hate this work. I need to have the qualifications so I'm not stuck doing this work. And my whole thing was career. I wanted to work, but I wanted to work in a way that I was free with working, that I, that I could just be, that I could just live my life however I wanted. I just wanted to just I didn't want to have to turn up somewhere every day and do something for everyone else. So writing to me was the way to do that. And I had ideas and things I wanted to do. And a lot of that was to do with women. So I, I powered on manifested and I wanted to live in LA for some reason. I just pulled to that stupid place. I was like, I'll go and write movies. And so I arrived at 24 to LA to write movies to, and rom-coms was my thing. And I did, I got into the industry quite quickly, to be honest. I, it took about 13 months. So I, I mean, I was making a living out of this. I've achieved this dream and getting into Hollywood was actually quite easy. And then it got really hard. So I would, you would know what it's like when you have to go to like general meetings and things and you've got to pitch yourself. And I used to put the sound show, you've got to go and say, why am I going to be the one to write your next movie? And what are all the ideas you have? And why should you be the ones to run to write these? And so you just tell stories from your life and blah, blah, blah. And I was living in LA. I was, by this point, I was about 26. I, I had a visa to live there, but I could only earn money selling screenplays. And looking back, I didn't realize at the time how utterly vulnerable I was mm. and how unique I was as a sort of 26-year-old Australian writer. 
there's not that many of us. Yeah, I think the world is perhaps divided between those women that know how vulnerable we are, either through personal experience, always awful experiences, and feminism that kind of opens the world up, it shows you the truth, and those women that actually just believe that they are invincible, and those women are great, and often they make it through life, and they're always great role models, but there's something that that kind of worries me about women not knowing our vulnerability, but at the same time, I really, I know that feminism is the opposite of telling women that we're victims because we're fighting against everything that victimizes us. I'd go to these general meetings and these guys would just, and they're mostly men, and you're getting, it was, it just became, it was, if I was to put it like in like a moving montage, it would just be that increasingly, attacking you creeping onto you is the best way to describe it and then I had two male managers two male agents my life was ruled by this and I was bound to them because of my visa so I was incredibly vulnerable and in my sound show that I would sit there and say I would tell them I I can only make money writing screenplays which was part of my please hire me I need to make money but for people hearing it was oh you've got nothing And I didn't know that. And so in terms of sexism, it hit me really hard. I had not been raised with it in any sort of really normal sense or or what any realistic sense, I suppose I should say. And I just, it hit me so hard and I didn't realize it for a long time because I thought, what am I doing wrong? And I stayed in Hollywood, you know, eight years too long because I should have left because, but because of what was going on, I was, it got to the point of like full, full blown attempted rape. And that was the moment when I went, I can't do this anymore. I was broken. I was a shell of a person. I couldn't write anymore. It was through therapy when I came back here like home that it was that I couldn't write because my survival instincts had kicked in that if. I wrote, it meant I went back into those rooms, but my livelihood was connected to it, my life, everything. And it was just during that time, I was back home for the first time in a long time. My mum had a lot of guilt because she'd spent her whole life protecting me from anything bad happening. Stuff had happened to her in her childhood. So she she protected me from anything bad happening in my childhood. I went away to do what I wanted to do. Bad stuff happened. And so we were talking about that and it just got into... Why don't we create a place just for women? And so we created an app that just, it made sense. And that brings us to here, basically. And now I'm being taken to federal court for that app. Oh, dear. What a disappointment Gillard is. What a terrible disappointment. And we look back at some of the kick-ass feminists that we have known in the US, in across Europe, in Australia, in the global south, where they have been so inspirational. And Gillard's misogyny speech that went viral, and you think, she gets it. She's a woman that girls can look up to and think, yes, it's possible to challenge powerful men in public. And what does she do now? She removes all of Australian women's sex-based rights. 
when she did that was 2013 wasn't it were you aware of any of this going on when the sex discrimination laws were tampered with to remove sex and replace with gender identity did you know what that was all about no and to be fair I was living in America at the time um but I knew of her speech but I didn't know what was happening behind the scenes and I'm just so grateful that you brought it up because I think about that about four or five times a day at the moment because Julia Gillard is the first female prime minister in Australia and she has dined out on that fact and the misogyny speech for the last however many years and now I'm here picking up the pieces of that and it might might cost if we go to the high court a million dollars to pick up to to fix what she her government's done and if obviously like I understand her government works it might not be her personally however she has to take responsibility for everything that happened in her government yes she does yes she does and and if you're going to be a role model and if you're going to accept that status then you have some responsibility to younger women and to all of the women in your country and if and as legislators, like when laws come across your desk, the job is to actually look at all of the different ramifications. How is this going to play out? And gender identity is act for the women who were aware at that time. You were one of them, but in Australia, there were a few women who were aware of what was going to happen and they did speak up. I've looked at it since and they were completely dismissed. I came to Australia in 2000 and. 15, I think, the first time, to promote my book that had been published in Australia after the UK. And it was on prostitution and the global sex trade. And as a feminist, I obviously don't do the sex work is work nonsense in the same way as I don't do the trans women are women nonsense. It's a just complete opposite of a feminist take on what happens in the sex trade. And you have legalised and decriminalised systems of prostitution in Australia in in some of your states. It's an abhorrence. So I come over at the invitation of my publishers, Spinifex, and I have a tour planned, Melbourne, Sydney. I did lots of national TV and radio. The book was doing extremely well in the UK and elsewhere, so... The same in Australia. Got the got a flight down to Sydney halfway through my tour to go and speak at readings. I did a really successful event at readings in Melbourne. It went down great. It was packed. We sold all the books. We had fun. And that was all tickety-boo. Go down to Sydney to speak at some blue fringe independent bookshop and was told that we were no longer welcome this was the day of the gig so we used the women's center around the corner diverted all of our ticket holders and again had a fantastic event but we were deplatformed at the last minute from a sydney bookstore and then and i've been back to australia since doing other book tours i find that readings in melbourne had booked some speakers, one of whom was Juno Dawson, a trans-identified male, calls himself a trans woman. And Juno had said, as well as his sparring partner, whoever it was that was doing the gig, online gig with him, that unless readings denounced me post-event, 
years later and apologise for hosting me, that they wouldn't do it. And guess what? They did. The owner did. He put out a statement that was highly defamatory of me and if I could have been bothered, I would have actually threatened him with a libel action. It was outrageous. And of course, I know Holly Lawford-Smith and I know some of the feminists out there, all of whom are campaigning to end men's violence, who have been vilified and monsterized and called Nazis and bigots. Australia is a cesspit for women right now. I can't even describe it. It's... Because <laughs> yeah, you live your life every day, normally. And then you go, but then you know what's happening under the surface. And so it feels like you're living two different lives because on the surface, everything's normal. But then you want to speak up about women's rights and nothing is normal. It's that the term Orwellian is bandied around a lot and it's actually, it's totally apt. And also another term that's been bandied around and I'm careful about language because you have to be as a writer and as a feminist campaigner we can't bandy words around that then lose their meaning misogyny has to mean the hard way (laughs) and misogyny has to mean misogyny not sexism we have to mean what we say Orwellian is totally apt for what's happening as is McCarthyite McCarthyism the way that you look at some feminists who I would previously have admired or respected who would definitely give me up in a heartbeat if it meant that they stay on the nice side, that they can claim that they are on the right side of history, that they dodged the bullet. And we're all behind you here, all my feminist community, all of the community that I engage with directly or indirectly that wish to, that seek to uphold women's rights are all with you. And I just want to talk about this character, Roxanne Tickle, and the absolute hell that he's put you through over this time. Start me off with how it happened, because I know how dreadful being involved in this type of litigation is, even as the claimant. I've been on both sides, and it's pure hell. So tell me how it all worked out. The best way to explain it is that in February 2021, there was a trans activist who communicated with me on Twitter, like replied to something I had said. I replied back. We had two tweet interaction and then I blocked that person as I do actually with 99% of trans activists because I'll say my bit and then I'm like you're out because I'm not interested I don't want to speak to these people I curate my Twitter experience to the most as much as I can so that was and this particular person ended up being Roxanne Tickle who then actually tweeted to his own personal account that he that Sal Grover, the CEO of Giggle, had blocked him on Twitter. And then he joined Giggle. And I saw him on Giggle. It wasn't immediately, so he got through the security. So to give a little bit of information here, so Giggle is a female-only social networking app that had the goal of it was for various different things. It had a section for room, find roommates, to find freelance work, uh, an Airbnb type situation, then just general support, health, like all different reasons why women would want to connect. We didn't take any money from, there was no money. Our thing was that there'd be like 
ads within it, that's how the app would make money. But we would not take money from women because that was also the thing that was important to me that women, if they earned money through the app, they didn't have to give it to us because I, as a freelance writer, I use different platforms for writing work to make money. And then you have to give 10, 15% to someone else. I was like, no, I actually want a place where women get the job. They keep the money. It's nothing to do with me. So that's what we created. Anyway, to make sure it was female only, keep in mind when we were developing this, we did not know this issue, but we knew that men would want to go on it because anything to do with women, men want to go and have a look at and whatever. We knew it would have to have gatekeeping. So the gatekeeping was AI security, which was just really simple. You take a selfie and the AI would assess whether it was male or female. Now, there's two things about this. One, that you actually can just tell. <laughs> and it's really simple. And whether yeah. even beyond the really superficial, it's actually just bone, like really basic bone structure. You can just tell. And then also with the AI program, they they it's just compared to lots of different images, what how they do it. I didn't create this particular software. It was just an AI API add-in to it. Anyway, this particular individual actually passed it. These are the lengths you have to go to create a female-only space. I wish you didn't have to. Women-only spaces online, which I think is the natural evolution for female-only spaces, is they also become digital. We have to actually implement really serious ways to keep them that way because men are not going to just let them pass. So he got through the human eyes, which 100% would have been me at the time. I saw it, a man had gotten through and I booted him off. But then what the actual unusual thing where this person became someone in my life was that he called my phone and text my phone and no other person, woman, male, anyone had ever called or text my phone before. Yet another example of this crossing of boundaries in a very aggressive, threatening way. We know what that's about. And immediately, and I actually just moved in with like my boyfriend, who's now like my partner, my father of my baby. I, but I just moved in with him and he worked away two weeks of the month. And at this time when I got this text, he just moved in. He was away for two weeks. I was there by myself and I got this text and I, and phone call and text. I didn't answer on the server. I searched the phone number and this just picture of a man came up and I went, no, that that's a man. And I called my dad and I said, there's a guy saying he's a woman who wants to use giggle what do I do? He's called and texted my phone. What do I do? And dad said, lock his number and don't tell your mother because she will get scared. And so that's exactly what I did. And then about six, seven weeks later, I got a, an Australian Human Rights Commission complaint for gender identity discrimination. And the first thought I had no word of light was like, oh shit, now I have to tell mom. <laughs> I just want to j just interject here because I want to carry on with this story. We, we need to look towards how we can support you and what it's going, in terms of the stages that this case is going to go through so we can be with you all the way. But just a little note about dads here. My dad sounds really similar to yours. My dad died last year and he was... Yeah, he was, he'd been ill for a long time and he was a very traditional working class man from the northeast of England. And as old fashioned in many ways as you can get, but he sounds just like your dad in that he was eminently curious, always wanted to know, always wanted to find things out, didn't really take much at face value except for 
some quite basic stuff that is, is really difficult to overcome or see differently when you were raised in the way that he was. But it's very important, isn't it? Because I've gone through my life knowing that my mum would have been a feminist had she born in different circumstances and different era and her life would have been different. And she, I've always credited her, rightly, with giving me the freedom, the opportunities, the inspiration to go out and do what I ended up doing. And mums are obviously all hail the mums, but I've actually started to think maybe a little bit more since he died that I possibly should credit my dad with some of that. He would be really surprised to hear this. And so would my brothers and probably so would my mum, maybe. I definitely do, because when I go and look back through history and I'm talking, if you go the last thousand years of history and really amazing women who broke through and you research their history, it was an amazing dad behind them that allowed them to do that. We've just been talking about families and how important those relationships are and how they shape us in good and bad ways, negative and positive ways. And you are someone who did decide to stand up against this the vast majority do not and the vast majority the majority of women are not feminist even if they do what we would think of as feminist actions have feminist views tell me this dude threatens you clearly you're someone not to be messed with as it happens as it turns out and you then realized at some stage which you're going to tell me about i hope when you realise that you have no choice but to actually go through this litigation and fight it. My mum, who is the co-director of the company at the time, she was having a heart attack. She was panicking, not going, well, you know, what have we done wrong? And I was like, let's just find out. Because I'd never been called phobic of anything. I'd never been attacked in any way in my life. I'd never been public on social media or anything. So there'd never been any reason to. Anyway, I then stumbled into the gender critical subreddit on Twitter, on Reddit and then onto Twitter just by doing general searches of everything. I found like it was you, Helen Joyce, Jane Claire Jones. I think Kara Jansky maybe had been speaking about that point. But anyway, you three, because the British women were definitely the big ones at that time. This is early 2020. You guys were the big ones. Because this is pre-JK Rowling's essay as well. Yes. And so... I then went like, I was reading everything the women were saying and I was writing some things and being like in that what's instantly ingrained in you by the left of you want to be inclusive and nice and thinking, but I'm, yeah, so I was pushing back. I was writing some things and these women, they just kept saying, educate yourself. And so I just did. I went and educated myself and I just found with so quickly they weren't telling a word of a lie it was things that obviously there was the really immediate things you were seeing were that say lesbians were the ones who were being told that they were bigots but then you were also seeing that women who were trying to end female genital mutilation in islamic countries were being told that they were transphobes for simply advocating for that or for using those terms and i was going hey what these are two causes that i care about what what is going on And so I just, for about six or seven months, I kept just reading and listening to everything. Kelly J. Keene's episode of Trigonometry had come out and I listened to that probably maybe 50 times because I was very inspired by just how clear she was in her language, unapologetic she was in her language. And then J.K. Rowling's essay came out and that was the clincher. It was like, okay, I'm not going crazy because for six months I thought I was going crazy. 
And I hadn't, we hadn't made any announcement of, oh, it's just strictly female only or anything. We didn't know what to do because we were trying to find a way to not be attacked, but do something for women. And so we were just, and you, you're cancelled out of the gate, which is what we were. And anyway, so then I obviously read J.K. Rowling's essay. It inspired me as well. I started to then speak up tweeting. And then that changed everything. I then was in a situation where I was putting my name to it and my company to it. And I was saying no to all of this. Cancelled across the board. I don't think that I could have gotten media attention if I'd been murdered. I, no one would speak to me. And we were trying to work with different like startup investment companies at the time. I mean, startups are hard normally. And you add all of this into the mix. It is just a whole new element to it. We wanted to do equity crowdfunding, which is this new interesting way of doing startups because it makes that sort of your users and the people who are involved in your startup part of it and they can own part of it. And I was like, that is great for what we want to do because it would bring women into sort of the investment realm. Getting, allowing women to have an investment portfolio, what a fantastic thing. And they could have ownership of the app. Not a single equity crowdfunding company would work with us. One of them said that the, in the stuff that they'd seen about us, they called it the, the bad press trans open wound, which I felt was... Oh, dear. I found that it was almost fitting. <laughs> uh, obviously, oh. they don't know as much as I do. But yeah, it was like, it was just, you were sitting there, you're just trying to find dollars here and there and it, sometimes it's dollars you know it was just it, everything was crashing down but I just and at no point did I ever think allow men on that would be easier my whole thing immediately when and this was in the first few days when I got the a little bit of an idea what was going on I said we have no company if we let these people on I said we may as well close up shop so there was no there was never a point of okay, we'll just give in to the zeitgeist and go along with it because my position was, what was the point of it? What's our unique selling position? There was nothing. So I was like, we're just going to have to do the hard yards here. And even the idea, gosh, I think of it now because that's almost three, that's basically three years ago now. And it's been a long, hard three years. But I didn't think of all the struggle or the financial, or the horribleness of it. It was just like, if we're going to do it, that's the only way to do it. And you just, you just, we, you tread water and you do what you can and you push to try and help get this to go away. That was all I thought of. So tell me where we're at with the litigation and what is coming next. We really want to support you in every single way that we can. We will not let you go down. Thank you. So basically what ha- so what happened? So I got the, the human rights complaint in January of 2022. Now I was 15 weeks pregnant at the time when I got it. And you go back and forth. I had to bring in a lawyer. You go back and forth with that. And so one of the basically part of the conditions for me going to conciliation in the Human Rights Commission, because they don't have any sort of, they're like a mediator. They don't have any, it's like what you do, it's like pre-court. But basically what Roxanne Tickle was asking for was to be allowed onto the app that all men who claim to be women could be on the app that we would moderate how women speak on the app so not to offend any men who claim to be women. And then I would go to sex and gender education classes. 
And I just said, no, I'm not doing that. So hang on a minute, sex education classes. Sex and gender education class. A sex and gender education classes. Oh, yeah. my word. Yeah. And so I was just looking at this. I was like, I'm, no, I say no to all of this. And so what is the point of us going and sitting in a room, whether it was virtual, like sitting on Zoom and having this discussion? There is absolutely no point to it. I'm also pregnant. I'm not putting myself through the stress of it. I was 37 years old and pregnant. I'd been dealing with morning sickness. I was, I was, what's class? I hate to say it. It's a geriatric pregnancy. I hate that, but whatever. It was. I was just, I was 37 and pregnant. I'm not going to do all of this stuff that I know I'm not going to agree on. What is the point? Roxanne Tickle has said in an interview that all he wanted was to sit across from the table from me and to be able to ask, why do you th- not think I'm a woman? Because you're not a woman. That's why. And I'm not going to waste my time to sit across from a table and say that. And you're not going to drag me there. You're not going to get me there because that's part of it. You want me to sit there and say it and I'm not going to do it. Good for you. This is about compelled speech. It's about men wanting us to be on our knees and doing what they want. Even if we're going to sit there and say no, it's the fact that we were there. It's sadistic. Yeah. So I said no to it all. And knowing that the potential was that, that, so basically the Australian Human Rights Commission then goes, okay, then nothing can be settled here. They advise him that you then have 60 days that you can file in federal court. And so interestingly, Roxanne Tickle filed in the Australian Human Rights Commission, which is the whole country, which makes it immediately go to the federal court, the whole country's court, which the Sex Discrimination Act is it. So this is not like a state issue where it could have been like it's such a minor thing. This is the big one where the Sex Discrimination Act is up for debate, which is what Julia Gillard brought in. And to be honest, like back when, like in the early days of the human rights complaint or anything, I wasn't thinking of that. It was when he then filed in federal court. And at this point I was heavily pregnant and it was like okay so it's on fine and then that's when so we then got a barrister Bridie Nolan who is my barrister to this day and she went this is a constitutional challenge this is great I hate to I'm not dismissing how what a nightmare this is for you but this is great news this is the case because everything is so clear cut. And, and I'll say this, anyone who gave me shit of calling the app Giggle, and I understand all of their problems with it. I had my reasons. I thought it was really cute and that it was like techie. But anyway, but we, it all came, it is all culminated in Tickle V Giggle. So <laughs> you're welcome, everybody. It's great. We could, yeah, we could not have made this up. You couldn't. It sounds like a puppet show, the most serious puppet show on the planet. So basically, so he filed in, okay, so where we're at right now, he filed in federal court last year. Then he withdrew three weeks before I had bill. So he withdrew and then I didn't know anything. I, we were just like, I had to take it as a win. He withdrew. Then he refiled in December of 2022 on the same claim. So it wasn't a new claim the same claim so he's 200 days out of time so what where we're at right now we've had the first case hearing where of whether the 
our side and their side, so the applicant and the defendants, have stated why it should go forward and why it shouldn't. So what is the next court date or plank of this case? Right now, we are in no man's land, pun intended. We are waiting until June 2 to find out with the judge rules that it goes ahead or not. Where it becomes interesting, in a sense, legally, is that he has... He will, he claims, I haven't seen it yet, but he claims to have a birth certificate that says he's female. So it's not, this is not a self-ID situation. This is someone who, while blatantly looks like a man, claims to have a female birth certificate that states they're female. And now the only way he could have a birth certificate that says he's female is if he's had surgery, because that's how the Queensland law is. He says it's a Queensland birth certificate, so it'd be Queensland law. So then, okay, so he's had the surgery and everything. Okay, fine. But this is why I'm like, that's relevant to me. This is still a man. This is surgery, safety, all of that stuff, actually, in terms of the argument for female-only spaces, all of this stuff is noise to me. It's just, is it true or not? Is someone a male or a female? This person is biologically male. Then they're not welcome in female spaces. That's all that matters. And he's clearly biologically male. This person responded to the pronoun he for the first, on his record, claims for the first 47 years of his life. Cool. Okay. That's nine years longer than I've been alive. What happens? I understand that on June the 2nd, the judge will decide if this case will go ahead. If it does go ahead, what's your next move? So it will be like the full thing in trial everything out there on the table of the the other thing that is that's happened is that the Australian Human Rights Commission has requested to be amorous curie in the case which is what it's called a friend of the court that's Latin for friend of the court so So we call it here in the UK we would say someone is has intervener status or something of that nature that you're an interested party you have skin in the game basically because the Australian Human Rights Commission actually were the ones who lobbied for and wrote the law of gender identity and the Sex Discrimination Act. So that's why they want to be in there. So from my perspective, I go, are you kidding me? These, this play, this institution where the complaint was filed, who wrote the law, was the Australian Human Rights Commission ever for me? No, they weren't. Like, where are my human rights in any of this? Just lost, apparently. Okay, so look, moving forward, when do you think, if it goes to trial, because that won't be decided, obviously, until the 2nd of June, when might that trial take place? I would say probably, let's say, they'll announce it in June. So let's say, gosh, what will be September, October? Like, nothing moves quickly. That's quicker than our system, let me tell you that. (laughs) Look, it could be longer and then they go, oh, hang on, it's November. Oh, it's the end of the year, so it's next year. Anything could happen. And then, so say we have what would probably be a five-day trial, like that's completely feasible. There's every chance that we could lose. I'm fully prepared. I am mentally and emotionally prepared to lose in federal court, just in the sense that because gender identity has muddled the law so much, there's every chance our enemy is a judge deciding that sex is just a legal concept. 
that's what's against us as a judge going, oh, it's just a legal concept. That's it. And you go, what are you basing that on? What do you even mean by that? But he doesn't, but that, that that's the reality of him going, okay, it's a legal concept, but then that's fine because we would then, our, we would appeal straight to the high court. The constitutional challenge kicks in. Losing in the high court will be horrible in the sense that the period of time between losing in the high court and winning in, oh, sorry, losing in federal court and winning in high court will be an agonizing 12 months. It will be horrible. It will be may have forced out a case on steroids because every TRA in Australia will be like, ha ha, you lost all everything. It will just be horrible. But you've just got to grit your teeth and go, okay, yeah, but we're playing the long game here. We will need to win in the high court. And the high court thing, the constitutional challenge part of it, in terms of we're going Sex Discrimination Act, we're going CEDAW, what's ratified in CEDAW, we've got a really good constitutional challenge. So what can we do here in the UK and elsewhere, whoever's listening, how can we help? So it really is... A situation of international media giving us the time of day and it's not just me it's there's a few court cases of women that are emerging like I'm sure you're seeing that Moira Deming who is yes the, polit- the politician who's going for defamation then you have Kira Lee Smith who is being charged with getting AVOs about harassment for saying that men shouldn't be in female sport then you have Louise Elliott in Tasmania, who's a councilwoman in Tasmania, who's being told that she's being accused of hate speech for saying that trans women are men. So we've got these few cases. Now, the problem is that the only media in Australia who will give us the time of day is the Australian newspaper and Sky News. Now, occasionally, like the Age, Herald, Sun, Telegraph, sort of thing, those ones. So Age and Daily Telegraph will we'll maybe, if, if there's journalists are on our side, definitely, but maybe they'll get an article passed and it will be as neutral as possible, blah, blah, blah. But in terms of like just down mainstream, like the talk shows, the morning shows, the things people are consuming, radio, all of that stuff in their normal lives every day, there's nothing, this is not, this issue is not on there in our favour. At all. We are absolutely excluded from it. So in this age of inclusion, (laughs) we can literally demonstrate that exclusion is happening and it's agonizing. So while I'll happily go on to Sky News and I will talk to them all the time and they've been so lovely and given me a voice, I'm at the point I'm preaching to the choir. There's only so many times I can go on there and say men are women, men aren't women, and they're going, yeah, well, we fucking know. So the way to circumnavigate it is for Australian women who are dealing with this and New Zealand women, because New Zealand women are the other ones who, while they don't have court cases yet, they will. But the way to circumnavigate it is international press, because what happens with Australian press, the moment that there's international interest in it, the other ones pick up on it. Let me tell you here, on Turf Island, there are plenty of us journalists that will be writing about this, that will be reporting on it, that will be interviewing you for podcasts, for all kinds of manner of output. So you don't have to worry about that at all. 
because and because one of the things is also in Australia with this particular case, as the judges said, and everyone involved in it has acknowledged, there's no case history here. So the case history that there's going to be used are actually international cases. So that's going to come like mayor for starter and all the US cases, the different state cases and federal cases that are happening there. We're having great success in the courts. So this case is actually goes ahead. It's going to be quite international in terms of what we are citing. It's just that what it's going to do is is being impacting Australian law, but at the same time, then the ramifications. We're all connected in this way. You think of Canada as well as other countries, poor Tranada, who is... Oh, Tranada, yes, indeed. Just, yeah, but they're part of... How I think of it is I'm like, you guys are part of the Commonwealth, and we all know that there's women over there, and there's definitely lawyers, and they're just waiting for opportunities, and what's the case? What can they do? Because lawyers have to wait for the case to come along where they can do something, and they also have to have in some point, if they don't have the perfect case, they have to have great precedents. So what we're hoping is that we can set a great precedent and that other countries in the Commonwealth can use that and be like, okay, here, look, it's happening. It's all, and we can all piece this puzzle together and get back to some form of reality or pure reality, which is, it's just sex. Like my position is if you want gender identity to be in law in any way, shape or form, okay, who am I to say no to that? But it shouldn't be in the Sex Discrimination Act. That's pretty obvious because they themselves, the activists, say sex and gender are different. Get gender identity out of the Sex Discrimination Act and put it in some generic discrimination act. Hey. Because where it's sex that's important, it's the only thing that's important. That's it. I don't care. Like I did not discriminate on Roxanne Tickle with Roxanne Tickle on the basis of gender identity, which is the claim. I did not. I discriminated on the basis of sex because he is male and I can prove that I can prove he's male and I can also prove that I did not discriminate on the basis of gender identity I didn't know it and the irony of this is that you never would have to prove that he is male because every single person on the planet including those that have legislated against our sex-based rights including those that spout the mantra trans women are women all know he is male. 100%. The other way that I know that he, that people know that he's male is that you would think that the trans activist media in Australia, which is very powerful, which is all of the, like the Guardian, the Sydney Morning Herald, all of the morning shows, the, the nighttime talk show type thing, all of these, are all of them that are captured by it, silence. Interesting. There'll be no silence when... We get going on this. We're with you 100%. And let's talk again after June the 2nd. I think let's keep this going and let's keep this story right up there in the UK and elsewhere around the world. Because that's basically the thing is that it's just if we can just keep it going around the world and being like, this is what we're doing. This is what's happening. It's our way of making the Australian public aware of it because the thing is, you're just watching it going, there's some people who aren't aware. And whenever I talk to any normal person in Australia, just everyday people who I talk to all the time, they're on our side. You tell them what's going on, they're like, oh, this is ridiculous. I'm on your side. And they're like, and they say, why is this not in the press? And I go, I completely agree with you. So we've got to raise $500,000 for the federal court case, which that's fine. I know I'm going to be able to do it. So I'm not worried. 
But it's a huge ask for people all around the world to have to pay for this that Julia Gillard should never have done. Because if it goes to the high court, if we get like, we will not get change for $750,000. They've said $750,000 to a million dollars. So I'm just like a million dollars is what we've got to raise in total if it goes to the high court. But a mil- then I go, if someone said like in my darkest times in all of this, and we didn't have, when we don't have an opportunity to do anything, if someone said, if you could pay a million dollars to get women's rights back, would you do it? Right. Look, we will add any crowdfunding page link to this podcast. On that, and it's, this is actually just a really interesting part of it, I think. So we actually built our own crowdfunding site. It's gigglecrowdfund.com. We built it ourselves because one will get kicked off anything. So we just preempted it. And so now we've built it. And so eventually we will build it into the new platform in some way. But I was... I want to open it up to everyone because I don't, there's gay men who are going to need this as well. And other, and also like straight men, like just men in general, where there's just no interruption of what you're raising your money for. Because men are getting fired from jobs and things like that as well. I hope you enjoyed is a funny word, but I hope you got something from that conversation. I feel really, really upset on Sal's behalf that she has to do this. I've been through legal cases as a result of the mad, misogynistic gender craziness. And it's horrible, it's stressful, and it's very, very expensive. So let's all stand behind her. I know there are so many other cases going on in the country in which you are listening to this podcast, doubtless pretty much everywhere where the law is at least as pliable as the law in the UK when it comes to arguing these cases. But for some women, they have no choice. They can't bring these legal challenges. So we need to support those in existence. Thank you for listening. See you next time.